Hello, I'm your host, Olivia Braffman, and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge us ambitious women that little bit closer to figuring out how to navigate both the fulfilling career and the family we desire. And well, challenge is the role we're supposed to play in it all. Each week, I'm going to be talking to the inspiring women who, in their own special way, have done just that. Let's get into it. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shelley Gilbert, MBE. Shelley is a leading child and young person bereavement counsellor and has dedicated her life to the cause. Originally training as a psychotherapist and specialising in bereavement, working for numerous charitable organisations, in 2004, she founded what is now the leading child UK bereavement charity, Grief Encounter, and currently holds the role as trustee and lifetime president. Why, you might ask, would someone be so passionate and determined to provide a safe space and early support to children going through bereavement? Well, Shelley sadly has first-hand experience of this, having lost both of her parents at just nine years old. Her work has seen her gain some incredible accolades from the Daily Mail Inspirational Woman of the Year Award to an MBE as a recognition for her 20 years of work helping bereaved children. She is a renowned speaker and author on the subject with regular TV appearances and on radio with a TEDx talk and best-selling workbook about grief to her name. Despite all of this, Shelley also manages to be a wonderful wife and mother to four grown-up children and now grandmother to quite a few. Shelley, your impact on the world is, is quite hard to comprehend, but a huge welcome to the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Olivia. And um, I'm kind of finding it hard to add anything to that. Thank you. I didn't realise I'd achieved so much. <laughs> thank you. You really have. Sometimes it's quite nice to to hear it and hear it from someone else because it's really quite amazing. Now, I normally kick off by asking my guests, what are some of the most character-defining things that occurred during your childhood that help explain the why behind the person you are today? But that's quite clear for you. you. You very sadly lost both of your parents as a young child. What are your memories of going through that Olivia, great question and thank you for asking. Um, My immediate thoughts to that really linked to my experience of growing up. And you used the word sadly. Actually, it took me far too long to realise that wasn't the right word. Sadly, what I was experiencing and had experienced was a tragedy. And that was part of my journey was to actually think, yeah, Actually, you know, I'd grown up with saying, yeah, I'd experienced the death of both my parents by the time I was nine, but how lucky I was because of what happened after um, my father died. Because I was lucky. I was adopted by my aunt and uncle, my dad's sister uh, and brother-in-law, and I went into a ready-made family to which are the, fa- the family are the foundation of my life now. And I learned life's greatest lesson very, very young, and that's the importance of family. But also, I grew up with saying um, how lucky I was and not addressing the dark side. 
Uh, and the dark side is that what happened to me and what happens to bereaved children and young people because it's premature death is, isn't sad. It is sad, but it's actually a tragedy. And that's been my life's work. Yeah, and I guess, look, the impact that that maybe had on you. So what was the, the impact of hearing the words that no child wants to hear? Your mum has died or your dad has died or your sibling has died. What, what, what is the impact to them? My um, world was changed overnight. It was blown apart. It was as if I was living, I'd gone to an, another planet, planet grief. It, it was traumatic, and at times you have an out-of-body experience. It's as if it's happened to somebody else, and your world is completely changed. It's blown apart. And, and what do you do? Um, there, are no, there are no words that any child should hear. And not only that, I lost my school, my friends, my identity, my home overnight. Nothing was the same, completely changed, and it wasn't for the better. You become very, very resilient. Your thoughts, feelings, and behaviours are, are, are separated, and you live in total abject fear. There's no peace. You live in high anxiety states because you think everybody's going to die. Um, you have little untroubled sleep, haunted by night terrors and nightmares. You've got anger that doesn't belong to a child. You have the deepest possible sadness and profound grief that you can't explain. And you're left very vulnerable, very fearful, and you hide the pain and loneliness. You become very good at hiding your pain because adults are very easy to fool get involved in the complicity of silence you don't want to upset the adults around you and they don't really want to hear what you've got to say because we're not very good at dealing with death and the finality of death to think that you'll never see that person ever ever again you'll never smell them you'll never hear them you'll never be able to touch or cuddle them ever again is just too painful you have to get used to a world where people disappear forever, people are gone. It causes broken relationships, rifts and strains. What were previously strong relationships become challenged to the very core of your being. And this is what you have to deal with as a child. Adults can't deal with it. How, how do you possibly manage it as a child? And unless very cautiously looked after and held. Um, they become deep, deep, the deepest of deep narcissistic hurts, buried, and they cause you problems in adult life. There's no doubt about it. Having said that, it was very important to me to stress and emphasise that it's not all doom and gloom. You know, I've always, always had a very positive outlook on life because you've learnt that the worst possible thing has happened already. And you, you can survive. You can survive everything because you've got the tools to deal with it. You know, there are times still where it is a struggle to remember the good times. It might be blocked by survivor guilt. And you've forgotten, and this is really key, you've forgotten how to have any kind of fun and enjoyment. 
Um, and that's a really, really key issue that I look out for now in my work and in my, li- my own life, because what's stolen from you is the fun, that ability, and we can reference it by one of the great gurus, Winnicott, who talks a lot about play and creativity. As your childhood is stolen overnight, and you lose that ability to, to play and to create. Uh, and that's, you know, what I have spent a lifetime of learning and what I want to pass on to the kids and the families that I meet. I, I almost don't want to stop you talking because it's so incredible to hear that perspective, you know, and you hope that most people listening have not had to or haven't gone through anything close to that, but even just hearing from someone that has is honestly pr- pretty profound to, to hear you speak. I can't even imagine what that, how that impacts someone going through the natural milestones of life that we all hit, you know, the teenage years, the early adult years, all of a sudden we're co- completing our education and we're going into the workplace uh, so, Olivia, your words that you use are absolutely fantastic. And to actually say, I can't imagine, is like music to my ears because, no, we can't imagine. What we as young people and the young people I meet uh, want, we don't want the sympathy or the pity. What we do want is the empathy. And that's pretty hard. So when you said about, I can't imagine, that's absolutely spot on because we can't imagine. And then when, as a young person, we're asked, we can start to tell you what we don't have is the language. We don't have the words. It's like learning a whole new language. It's as if you've gone to planet grief, it's as if you've gone to France without being given French Together, we learn, we learn the language. And what happens after someone dies and you experience the traumatic impact of death? You lose your way of communicating. I kept my story silent for far too many years. And there were various reasons for that. So although speaking words is our uniqueness as human beings, but being bereaved often means you just haven't got the words to describe what you're feeling or you're thinking. It might mean that old words have new meanings, such as mum or dad. The word mum to me was, was a word I d- never, ever used, which is quite shocking, never to use that word. And if people did use that word, it might be a teacher in a class, it might be a child saying, where's your mum? It was like a dagger through my heart for understandable reasons. It wasn't words of comfort. A mum wasn't a word of comfort. There are words that have new meanings like past or peacefully or lost. I'm lost is a very significant word because you know people would say, oh, you've lost your mum. Well, it's much more than that. Mum had actually died. Lost, you, you lose your keys or your phone. So we're very mindful as, as professionals and as grief counsellors. And so pick me up if I use it, because I quite often do, when you say someone, 
we've, we've lost someone. It's not, someone's died. That carries far more gravitas. The other, the third point about words is that you have to learn some new words and small words like dead, die, kill, gone. They become big, explosive words that can and usually do overwhelm you. Um, they're words that are sort of loosely used in common language. You know, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to murder you. I remember meeting um, Kevin Wells, whose daughter Holly was murdered in some... And I, we met for the first time. Hopefully he doesn't remember this, but I do. And I just said, oh, I'm going to murder you. And like, what is the worst word you can use to someone who's experienced a, a murder in their family? Thank you for saying that, because I think a lot of people don't know the right thing to say or what to say and, and therefore don't say anything. And that may be worse in a lot of situations and... So thank you for teaching me something about that. And you, You've brought me around to thinking about the other big issue that I had to face, and that's uh, and bereaved kids face, is that's the one of trust. So what is really important is about building the right relationships in the right way at the right time. So yes, it is about asking that young person about what's happened, but it's also about... Um, that young person being able to choose uh, whether it is the right time. And we have to be very mindful of that. Time is a big word. Whether it is the right person, whether it is safe to share at that particular time. And that's, that's something you learn very, very, very much on the way. That's a key lesson, the right, you know, that you choose the right support group. And certainly in the in the field in the psychological field we hear a lot about attachments and attachment theory and that's of key 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 importance in our grieving process Um, and that's certainly been my learning on the way the importance of family and the safe situation the three lessons um, I learned was one about keeping my story silent for too long the second lesson was the importance of family um, and the right support. And the third lesson was staying on the road of helping make sense of what's happened. And that's, that is a lifetime process. I was lucky enough to, to be drawn, uh, coincidentally, uh-uh, uh, to be drawn into the helping professions and to to be drawn in the psychological world and the world of therapy. It took me far too long to have my own personal therapy. And that was, well, not probably, it was only because I was on a a counselling course that I actually um, saw somebody. And when I saw a therapist, she changed my life. And I began to wonder why I'd kept everything inside for so long. It was such a relief to share these huge burdens that no child should ever have to carry. When you were just starting out in your career, did you immediately get drawn to these helping professions or did that come, did that come slightly later, this, this want and desire to, to help others? Um, when I was thinking about what I was going to say on this, on this podcast, 
to you, Olivia, and to, to your listeners. Um, I thought about, to go back to an earlier question, about some of the epiphany moments about what, what did change my life. And I thought of three. One was some, an outside influence where someone very, very close to me said, you've led a charmed life. And I thought, how can you actually say that when you know what happened to me? I have led a charm life, I ha- and I have and I still have the most incredible family, an amazing husband, obviously the four most beautiful children in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have more money than I can ever spend. I have the most amazing career and life. But I knew how close to the edge you could be when you experienced the death of your parents. And another epitome, epiphany moment was my husband said to me, and I, we hadn't been married that long, and I was in one of my raving humps and moods and <laughs> stormed off and acting like a little brat, I was used to doing. <laughs> and he said to me, why don't you say what you feel uh, instead of making me guess? And that was one of those moments where I was like, took a breath and realised, well, I actually don't really even know what I feel. I've never allowed more than two feeling words in my life, sad and happy. And that was part of the therapeutic process. And I realise now, you know, having... Uh, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've read a lot, a lot, a lot about how the brain works and the trauma, trauma, and that's exactly what you do to protect yourself. Your brain works in a different way, and you live in fear the whole time. Uh, and a very influential book. Uh, well, there's been a lot of influential books, but uh, influential books were, for example. Um, Judith Kerr's The Tiger Who Came to Tea. And that's about how you live with a tiger. The tiger's not only uh, in a zoo or in the jungle, the tiger's in your house. It's in your bed and in your bedroom and you live in fear. That was uh, a long answer. That was my second epiphany moment. And the third epiphany moment was actually reaching the age that my mother died, uh, which still isn't very clear. I think she was around 42. Part of keeping the whole story silent was that I don't, there's a lot of stories I don't hear, I don't know, um, one of which is her date of death um, and how old she was. And no one really knew the answer, which is very strange. You, as a child or young person, you don't think that you're going to reach, you're going to live beyond that age where your special person dies. And you know, there, there is research which actually demonstrates that if, you, uh, if, if your parent dies young, you will too. So there is some credence behind thinking that. I, I really never, ever thought that I'd live... As long as I have with my husband, I didn't think I'd grow old with my husband. And I didn't really even think I'd be there very long to mother my children. And when you start to analyse and think about that, it, it's, not, it's not right. 
and you need to trust that you will be there to mother your children, to look after them and protect them until they don't want you anymore (laughs) or until they have to start looking after you. You've obviously had an incredible career supporting those of others. Did you immediately go into training as a therapist and then ultimately working as one straight from the offset? Is that what you, is that what you knew your calling was from a career perspective? No, but I was always in the helping professions. I worked full time in the inner London with at the uh, Citizens Advice Bureau. Uh, and it was after that, I thought I was a good listener and I thought I'd do a basic counselling course and listening skills, active listening, active lifting active listening skills actually that's quite a good example of how I find it hard to speak you know, I am a good listener a very good listener and I've learned a lot on the way about active listening but I'm not very good with words I'm not very good at speaking words and it's taken me a long 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 time and I'm still not very good at it you know to actually speak um, and use the words or find the words. So, so you went into CAB and then it was it was later on that you then sort of retrained as a psychotherapist and then went into that into that profession. And that took me into another world, which um, I have led the field in that I have helped people rethink the way you grieve. And part of my learning on, on, on my psychotherapy courses was about what was in the mainstream about bereavement and grief. And it's still around a lot. And we're brought up to think about stages of grief um, or the tasks of grief. And they've been really misunderstood in, in the world. And I actually stood up in my community and said, and it was very brave at the time, said, actually, this isn't the way things happen. And it was a bit like the story of the emperor's new clothes. It was, um, yeah, oh, actually, yeah. You know, my psycho babble mates started to think, mm, yeah. And um, I use the model, and it's called the upward spiral of grief. And there's lots more um, about that in the grief book. Although grief book is written for children, it's full of creative activities to help people do what I've just been saying. But just very, very briefly, the spiral of the the model um, is a visual picture that isn't that isn't one of stages. It's a much more flowing. It's a much more fluid spiral. And we added in the words upward because we don't to inter, we want to, we don't to infer that grief the grief or grieving is a downward spiral it's upward it starts with a really black hole the traumatized dark dark hole that you find yourself in and the the model is intended to go to to take you around an upward spiral I was meeting widows who were six months on and they said to me Shelley um, I feel worse six months old on, and I'd say, good. And they go, what kind of counsellor are you? That's not very reassuring. You're pleased I feel worse. I say, yeah, what I'm saying is you're actually beginning to feel. We're very, 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 very clever human beings at putting ourselves in a trauma bubble. We don't want to feel. If you felt at the time of loss, for example, after experiencing the death of your child, 
you'd be in the grave with, with your child. You wouldn't want to be on this earth anymore. So it's, it's good that you don't feel in the first few months, even in the first year, what we look for. Uh, and that's what the picture of the spiral of grief tries to convey. What we look for is ways on the, on the journey that you get stuck or that you're, you're experiencing things at the extremes. For example, death, death can hold two, two ends of the continuum, two ends of the spectrum. One, you're not at all frightened of, of dying because what does dying mean? That you'll get the one thing that you really want in the whole world, and that's to see the dead parent again. On the other extreme, where death, where death terrifies you, you don't want to go out. The world's a very, very scary place, and you just, just want to stay in, and you don't want to move, and you don't want to go anywhere, which is also dangerous because we are human. Uh, we are connected human beings. We want to be with other people. Um, you know, it's not, there will be some that just don't, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we don't want to be in lockdown, do we? We've just had that experience um, through COVID. So you're doing this incredible work, impacting so many people. You get married in the process and, and meet your your wonderful husband and you go on to have four children. Now, I'm pregnant with my first. I can't quite comprehend four, but, but you did it. And how for you was the transition into motherhood at the time and while balancing the fact that you have this career where you're working very closely with with and supporting children going through incredibly challenging times while nurturing your own and being a mother how how was that process and transition for you at the time were you working throughout Yes, uh, and what I did was always put the children first, so I made it possible for both myself and the other yummy mummies, up, or daddy, but to make it possible for them to have that too, which was so fortuitous because not only was I able to balance both, um, for example, if there was a sit sick kids they'd come and lie on the sofa uh, safely and um, while we carried on working we we called it the sick sofa it was joking but what the result was I had these star yummy mummies who would otherwise have had these careers that they had to put first in town earning mega salaries I had those guys working with me I always work as a team um, I lead from behind. Uh, Nelson Mandela is my hero. Uh, I, so I had these young, yummy mummies, you know, who were working for part-time salaries because we had very little money at, at Grief Encounter. But they were working for... Um, they were working in the high-powered women, brains. They were working in their own time before we had um, online working at home. So they'd go home, look after the kids and work in the midnight hours for, you know, as a volunteer, it was a charity. So although they were paid staff, everyone, because we were passionate, because they had an inspiring leader, you know, there was the jokes about holidays, <laughs> you know, 
holidays, lunch breaks, <laughs> one of those. Um, you know, um, but it, 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 you know, wasn't wasn't a joke because everyone everyone pulled beyond because we wanted to, uh, and most of those people are still by my side. Uh, and we're still pulling through. We just had the most incredible gala dinner at the Roundhouse, uh, which is still very much in my mind, where most of those people that I started with are still by my side, some 15 years on, all punching above our weight, all yum, yummy mummy and daddies. How do you make it work? You're, is your husband working full-time? You're working full-time. You're sort of, the kids are coming along with you to... Um, and you're balancing it as best you can. But what is the reality of of both of you having such demanding priorities and, and passions and, and careers and a big family to support in the process? There was that moment where the price was too high. And um, it's actually quite a sweet little story was um, the charity and the grief encounter work started from our home. Uh, I had a proper office and it was separate and it was the very early days of running groups for the briefed kids and and the families and being a mummy one of the most important things was feeding and um, at the time some of the stuff wasn't was quite sort of cutesy stuff chocolates and sweets and all that um and there were boxes of it ready to go for, for the group that was happening that weekend. And um, I came home and the boxes had been opened. So, and I screamed as a fishwife, mummy often does, uh, who's opened these boxes? Who's been at these boxes? And a couple of my sons came and they went, oh, um, we did mum. And I said, but they're for my kids. And there was that silence, and they said, Mum, we're your kids. And I took a breath and thought, yeah, the grief encounter kids are getting far too much attention. I need to, to take a moment. And that's when I got in some more staff. And we worked harder on the fundraising side, and we moved out from home to offices. And although I didn't like the money being spent on anything other than the bereaved families that, I was, that we were supporting, it, there became a time where we had to become, I, I don't like the word more professional, but separate, separate from my home, from my kids and my family. And <laughs> although there's still a lot of um, hours devoted by my kids and my family, my extended family, it is now run by a, a, a separate team. Right. And was your husband then sort of financially being able to support the family so that you could sort of focus on the charity and and fundraising going to you know back into the um to the cause is that generally how things were sort of prioritized and balanced for you to allow you to do that no actually one of the things that my parents left me was my own legacy and that was the bit about the good that I was always always financially independent and I had that choice so it was always my choice it was nothing to do with with Michael my husband what made you start grief encounter you're doing this amazing work you're working for 
the place to be, you know, incredible notable charities supporting their young people. And in 2004, I roughly know the age of your children. You've had your children by 2004. They're all born by this point. What made you start the charity? I um, had small therapy practice and I was working with troubled children for a place to be and I could see myths being repeated by my bereaved clients children and I was looking for a a book a support book um, and I couldn't find one I found different different aspects from different places and I decided to bring it together with the help of those bereaved children uh, and write a book called Grief Encounter Workbook. And that I prototyped 100 at the time and sent them out very, very randomly, expecting a, a couple of aunties and uncles and some kickback from my psychotherapeutic community. And I did actually have some very interesting feedback one of which was, uh, it was a child's book, so I showed it to my eldest child, and he came back to me with uh, his feedback was, Mum, it's rubbish. Ah, thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks, Dan. Yeah, I can cope with feedback, but could it be a little more constructive? Uh, which bit? He said, um, oh, he said, um, oh, I didn't realise it was written for children, and, uh, no, still rubbish, he said. Okay, and he wasn't rubbish. You know, he 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 uh, he's very um, amenable, and he did give me some very interesting feedback. But also, it there were very powerful messages in the book about grieving and ways to grieve, and it's full of creative activities for children. It's just been republished as grief book, and I've been waiting fifteen years for someone to write something better, and it hasn't happened yet. So there's a challenge. But apart from the strong messages in the book, it encourages children to face, to have these conversations, these difficult conversations in very different creative ways. As I said earlier, that's what you lose. And grief can be faced through all sorts of ways, through drawing and painting and graffiti and singing and We've got a big thing about bad time rhymes and writing poetry and we a big thing also about laughing together and playing together and creating together and they help fill the empty spaces of loneliness and isolation. And the, the other big thing is about memory making because that's a huge empty spaces that you have to fill Uh, and how to create memories, how to make new memories and old memories. And people say to me, well, you know, they're dead. How do I make new memories? And there's lots of ways to think about that. I don't remember the question you asked me. Well, (laughs) I'm just letting it, I'm just, I love listening to you. But the question was around what made you start Grief Encounter? So obviously the the book, the workbook was the catalyst. And then I assume... It had the in, most incredible public reaction. We got on BBC television, had a lot of media appearances, and we engaged some uh, incredible people. I've been so privileged 
to meet the most amazing people in all different walks of life, experiencing all different ways of approaching grieving and death, you know, across the cultures, death's a great leveller. And the book had a huge influence on um, my ability to influence others in the way of grieving, it's given a whole new face to grieving. It's helped me lead the way through the book and through the activities at Grief Encounter. We've got innovative ways uh, of helping court bereaved families through the charity. Grief groups, grief family days, grief remembrance days, um, incredible interactive website. Um, we're now moving into a newer digital age. I'm, I'm getting used to it, but there are positives to social media and using social media in a, in a different way, still trying to keep young people safe. Um, so the book, the initial book, you know, was the launch pad for, for something I could never have even imagined. And what I would say is write it down, get it out there in, in whatever way you can. I, I think... Part of being a traumatised person is, you know, sometimes you can't stay with one thought for a long time for various reasons. So one thing is, you know, you do become creative, but along the way you become creative and muddled. So, you know, try and surround yourself with people that can help you get it down on paper, can um, help you be a bit clearer in, in what you say and how you speak. You know, it might be through paint, it might be through drawing, it might be through having to write your finances down and, you know, having someone in who is a more finite thinker than yourself. Um, I've been inspired by um, Simon Sinek, whose new book, his new, new book about finite and infinite thinkers, they're exciting times now in neuroscience and, um, you know, some very influential writers. I'm not a neuroscientist, but we have really got some very interesting ways of how, you, how the brain works now. Why are we looking at it in 2D? We still look at 2D pictures of a brain. We should be looking at it in 4D and what happens there and how our brain works. We've got some great information there now so it's about bringing that information into to mental health and mental health why are we calling it mental health you know there's lots of questions <laughs> well it's brilliant and I love how your journey sort of into it feels like a natural evolution you were working with the place to be you had a need for a you know a workbook that was better than anything you could find you created one that led to a huge publicity you rode on the wave of that you opened a charity and it's continued to evolve ever since which I think is a, a beautiful story because I think so many people when it comes to trying to make a difference or follow their passions try and have this very rigid plan set out and the world doesn't really work in rigid plans that you can follow but being being able to be nimble to the reactions, feelings um, that's going on around is is so brilliant. And I think something I'm interested about you is, I'm not saying lots of people could start a charity, but technically you, lots of people could go on to start a charity. And I'm I'm fascinated that what is it about you that didn't just go on to start a charity that could help a few people, but 
went on to start a charity that then becomes a UK leading charity. And you, an award-winning philanthropist, speaker, author, what is it about you that allowed Grief Encounter to become the success that it has? There's a threefold answer to that. The first is it's the confidence that the worst thing that could ever happen has happened to you so that you know that you survived that and you can survive anything. So the question is, what's the worst thing that can happen? That's the question I, I give to people. What is the worst thing that can happen? Uh, so the worst thing, to reality test that, what's the worst thing that can happen if? So you, you go for it. Uh, and you know that if you open one door, one door shuts, there's other doors that you can open. So you, you will take the risks. And the third way of approaching things is surround yourself by inspiring people, which I've certainly done. And clearly that's what, that's worked. And I love the idea of, you know, what's the worst that could happen. It's also, in, you've clearly worked incredibly hard to achieve what you've achieved. And, and that comes from a deep, deep passion for the mission and what you're doing. Maybe less so now that you've, that you're sitting on the board of trustees, but when you were really in the thick of, of running the day-to-day, what does life look like for someone running a charity? What, what does an average week look like for you? I guess um, when I heard you say the word, word works hard, I mean, that, that's ingrained. And because I love what I do, I love it. It has never, it's never felt like work. I, you know, I still... Well, maybe not quite so much, but I still work 25-7. I mean, I always feel I'm so lucky I can do a kindness for someone every day. Uh, and how lucky am I? Um, I, do, I do need to take a step aside uh, and think about myself a bit more, uh, my own health and well-being, um, my family's health and well-being I do 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 need to spend some time much much more time with them uh, and my and my friends and that will happen that will happen now so I guess that's my advice as well is always always prioritize yourself and your family and do what you love you know if you can do what you love it's it's not it's less a case of how hard are you working? If you're doing what you love, that feels like a less significant question to be asking. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's never work. It's a passion. Um, yeah, I'm, I am approached by several people, well, many people, you know, about setting up a charity. And I say, whatever you do, don't. <laughs> um, Why do you say that? Uh, um, I think... In all seriousness, in this day and age, there is so much paperwork surrounding it, so much safeguarding, uh, and a lot of it is valid. But as we're seeing with the NHS now, it, it, it's not—it's not the greatest system anymore. You know, it, it starts off with the right ways, but as you get bigger and bigger, we need to look at things in a different way. 
you know, that to me is my next mission, is to help others do what I do, what I did, and or or don't do what I did. You know, I'm very, I, I can see clearly the journey. I can see clearly the pitfalls. You know, it's a little bit like going to a special, your GP or your spe, or a specialist. You know, for for your health. Um, you know, I really, really, really can see what's sometimes what's likely to happen in the future, and help keep keep you on the right roads. Uh, and not only in the world of grief, um, you know, the rules apply apply on our emotional health and well-being. And, you know, fingers crossed it's something that is becoming far less taboo and far more something that is on everyone's, everyone's radar uh, today, which I'm pleased about. Yeah, it is becoming less taboo, but w- what is the challenge? The challenges still remain now is it's not about talking It's not only about talking, that is important. But as I was saying earlier, it's about finding the words and the language. It's about hearing. So it's about talking, helping people hear. It's about listening, us listening, and then helping us make some sense of it. It's the long-term work, um, helping, you know, whatever the problem is. Time is really important. And... You've achieved just incredible things through the work that you've done and through Grief Encounter. I'm generally interested to know, do your children share in your drive and ambition, regardless of the industries that they've gone into? But do they have that determination in them from, you know, the the role model that, that you've represented throughout their life? Every, every every child's different and they approach it differently. Yeah, I hope, what I hope uh, and I know is that they have the charitable value. Um, they will always think about other people for themselves. They have inbuilt compassion and, and values for other people, the charitable way. And look, I think lots of people today, particularly women who are in jobs for financial reasons or for reasons of convenience and ease whereas it doesn't sound like starting a charity is is done for reasons of excessive financial gain or ease certainly it's it's hard work and yet anyone would look at what you've achieved as sort of a pinnacle of success you know incredible things you've touched so many lives what what would you say to people who maybe have a passion for something but aren't following it and are taking the the route of ease or financial gain or convenience versus passion. Come speak to me. <laughs> you can get you can do both. We'll give out Shelley's number after this podcast to everyone. Yeah, there's well exactly as I said um, earlier. I, the the uh, yummy mummies and daddies that worked alongside me achieved that. So and there's a lot of people still working at Grief Encounter who have that passion. So they're working for a charity, they're paid, uh, but you can still have that passion and compassion. And I think actually that really came over in our gala dinner, you know, and that includes everybody, including, well, actually, one of my favourite, favourite things to witness is some of the 
graduates from our Grief Encounter program coming to work for Grief Encounter. There's quite there's several of them coming through now, which do does make me feel old. <laughs> but it, it, to me, you know, they're retraining either in the psychological field, they're training in the psychological field, or they're um, actually working for us, which is absolutely incredible. Or taking it out there in their different ways, um, not necessarily for grief encounter, but you know, come 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 speak to me and I'll help you. My last question to you, and I feel like I could ask you so many more questions, but... Yeah, you've asked the most wonderful questions. Thank you. Conscious how, well, conscious of how busy you are, and you're, I must admit, Shelley's on holiday at the moment, so, so many thanks for you doing this while you're away. Shelley's never on holiday. Oh, there we go. We learned that at the beginning, didn't we? Hol- what, what holiday? Absolutely. <laughs> as, you, as you reflect back on your career and and your life how how do you reflect on it what is your general feeling now as you think of everything that you've achieved and done that's such a good question and actually I think you learn that very young as well you know I've written my obituary when I was young that's part of an exercise actually on my counseling course you know how would people think of me and also Thinking, always thinking that I was going to die young, you know, and thinking, say, Princess Diana died young, but she she left on a high. But uh, thinking about myself, it's that my parents and my adopted parents, my aunt and uncle, would be proud of me. And what, how would that, what would that look like? And on my mother's gravestone it says it's some words from the jewish and my jewish faith which is uh it's a woman of worth who eats not the bread of idleness and always shows kindness and compassion and on my um, adopted auntie's gravestone it says children dear grieve not for us nor troubles take but love each other for our sake and they're the two mottos I I live by wow and you can see that just through everything that you're continuing to do that's incredible that they've they've stuck as such intrinsic values that have carried through to everything in your life now wow Shelley what a beautiful way to to end Thank you so much for your time today and for for sharing your story and and I've learned an incredible amount. It's it's not something I know enough about. And you know, I can't wait for for others to listen and and open up more conversations like this ultimately. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you. Open them up and take them further. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.